The human memory is a fallible machine. You add more to that equation when you talk about cultural memory. Quotes and dialogue get diluted over time, and the origins of them get split apart and rearranged and placed in new contexts. Psychologically, it's called reconsolidation. Our brains leave traces behind, and when we attempt to recall a memory, the pieces that fall back into place may rearrange themselves in a different order. If you recall that memory again, it distills a little more and a little more until it resembles something that isn't really what it used to be. These things get validated and strengthened when somehow other people in the same culture as you misremember things in the exact same way. It just solidifies the untruth. It's why people think Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your father, when that is not the quote. He says, no, I am your father. But culture, in a sense, is built on the things we agree on, the things we believe in together, regardless of their complicated origins. When I was a kid, my parents taught me the phrase, if you don't like the weather in Florida, wait five minutes. Now, I've never lived anywhere else, and my family has lived here for decades. I've never heard any other version of the quote, but the original version of it was not spoken about Florida. It wasn't even close to actually being that quote. The quote was originally about New England, and it was spoken by one of the great American authors, Mark Twain. He was speaking at an event for the New England Society, which is interestingly based out of New York City. The group was founded in the early 19th century by New England natives who had made a home in New York. It was their annual meeting, and Mark Twain, ever the comic, had much to say. There, to much laughter, he said, quote, I reverently believe that the maker who made us all makes everything in New England but the weather. I don't know who makes that, but I think it must be raw apprentices in the weather clerk's factory who experiment and learn how in New England. End quote. Later, in the same series of jokes about weather, he went on to add, quote, In the spring, I have counted 136 different kinds of weather inside of four and 20 hours. End quote. Somehow, in some way, over the course of 140 years, a monologue about the peculiarities of the weather in New England got twisted and chopped and screwed. The quote, If you don't like the weather, wait five minutes, is attributed to Mark Twain, but there's no evidence that it actually came from him. He maybe never even said it. We don't know, truly, where it came from. And more than that, it's been used in dozens of different contexts. It's been attributed to New England's weather, Texas's weather, Chicago's weather, the Midwest's weather, and of course, Florida's weather. As true as it is of all these places for the people that live there, the consistency of its inconsistency reigns true. And for Florida's weather, despite its constant changing and flux, we have one truth, the heat. It rains, it's hot. It's foggy. It's hot. It's cold. By the afternoon, it'll be hot. It's the universal truth of our life here. Heat. In terms of extreme heat, most other states in our country have had higher extremes in the 130s. Ours is a massive 109 degrees back in 1931. However, consistent heat is a different conversation altogether. Florida's summers often have day after day in the high 90s, sometimes pushing above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Our winters are equally staggering, often sitting at a balmy 80 degrees most days. Even our nicest sweater weather days will end in shorts and flip-flops. When you're this close to the equator, a subtropical ecosystem is just part of the deal. Some of our greatest gifts come from this. Our tourism industry relies on it. It is incredible that, in a state so supremely fickle on a day-to-day -day basis, we can always rely on the sun. 
Through all of the changes, we had had one stable thing, and it was a blue sky and brilliant sunlight. Not all changes are made equally, though. The change in weather with a sudden wall of gray clouds rolling from the east is one kind. A whole different kind of change came last month, when our state faced one of the hottest Junes on record. Globally, it was the hottest June we've ever faced. Before that, May of this year was the hottest May in Florida we've had in over a hundred years. At the current rate, this month could break its own records. In Florida, this just spells more and more in trouble. But like I said, not all changes are made equally. In our good times and our bad times, things are changing. And in the past year, so much has, for better and for worse. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. Today is the one-year anniversary of the very first episode of this show. It's been a year of amazing stories, incredible people and places, and growth, both for the podcast and for the state as a whole. Now, I'd like to tell you about how we're changing. We are standing in the middle of the Orlando Wetlands Park. Here, an exotic array of Florida's common wildlife navigate over 1,600 acres of water, muck, and grass. We are walking the two-mile birding loop that runs around a large body of water, with grass poking out of its surface. Padded into the sand beneath my feet are what looks like deer hoof prints. There are two sets, one smaller than the other. Off in the water, the familiar croak of an alligator echoes across the open land. A column of buzzards to the north has clearly found their lunch. The clouds roll at the perfect pace so that there are big pockets of sunlight, but also generally shaded and cool. Summer bugs hop across the path, chittering all around and creating the familiar audio sensation of being outside in Florida. With every step of my 45-minute walk, I'm grateful to be here. But what is really spectacular about this wetland, beyond the obvious facets of its place in our natural ecosystem, is that its origins are not natural at all. 30 years ago, the city of Orlando expanded beyond its original boundaries. With more people and properties comes the need for expanded sewers and water treatment facilities. Almost unheard of at the time was the idea that treatment could be done using ecological restoration, and the city of Orlando jumped at this new plan. They took an area of land that had previously been used as pastures way out on the eastern edge of Orange County in a famous little town called Christmas. It was the first time an undertaking of this caliber had ever been done. It is, quote, the first large-scale man-made wetland designed to treat reclaimed water and provide wildlife habitat, end quote. But how? Well, first, the park is split into 18 different areas called cells. These cells are routinely refreshed, having their soil replenished. Wastewater pours into the park from its eastern border deep into the depths of the park. There, it trudges through cypress swamps, wet prairies, deep marshes, and more. It takes over a month, but by the time it's done, it can be naturally restored to the St. Johns River. Where the reclaimed water meets the river, dangerous elements like nitrogen and phosphorus have been significantly removed. In fact, the reclaimed water, quote, remains consistently lower than the background levels of phosphorus that are found in the St. John's River, end quote. 
If you didn't know the function of the park, you wouldn't have any idea about the behind-the-scenes activity that is occurring. That is, unless you walk along cell number 13, which is currently being renovated. There, as you approach, the northern side of the walkway has been ripped to shreds, with huge piles of muck and mounds all across the field. Frankly, it stinks a bit here. Out beyond the trail are tractors and bulldozers rumbling through the mud, cleaning up the most northern cell in order to keep the filtration system working properly. It pulls back the curtain on the pristine nature that makes up the rest of the park. Though it isn't completely stripped, blue herons and white ibises sit on the tree and bushes in the muck, not scared by the loud human machines. Process for a moment what all this means. The bird song and the chirping of bugs you are hearing right now is not from the Everglades or a state park or some river basin. I am standing with soil beneath my feet in the middle of a sewage treatment plant the size of a neighborhood. All of this is because in the face of a man-made issue, one that could just be regulated to another massive energy consuming building, the people of Florida made nature work to our benefit. They built an ecosystem and the animals just came. So often, some of our most profound failings as a state throughout our history come when we lean into our inability to work with the world around us. We are dealt a hand as Floridians, and sometimes we refuse to play. This is true of Henry Flagler, the grandfather of Florida, whose railroad south left ecological devastation in its wake. As it jumped from key to key, approaching Key West from Miami, his crew built new canals and ripped apart whole plots of land. Back then, in the 1910s, the ramifications of these decisions could not be seen. It was the ripple effect later that would prove the faults. The southeastern areas of Florida no longer had a perfectly natural movement of water, and storm surges didn't have a natural flow. They just flooded. In the late 1920s, two hurricanes swept across the southern tip of the state. In the end, thousands died as a result of the pair of hurricanes, most of which were black migrant workers who lived south of Lake Okeechobee. To prevent a future like this, a series of stone walls were constructed around the edges of the lake. It was named the Herbert Hoover Dyke, and it expanded slowly over several decades. Year after year on Okeechobee, a toxic algae bloom would explode onto the surface, and last year, when the old levees built after the hurricanes couldn't hold the water anymore, the algae was drained to the coasts, killed hundreds of wildlife, and got dozens of Floridians sick. Beyond the ecological impact, our economy was briefly in trouble as beaches were closed for days to keep guests safe. All of this was because of one man's railroad. The effects that would roll for a hundred years could not be seen back then. Henry was just building a railroad. Again, when the Spanish brought their citrus seeds to our peninsula, they couldn't see that it would be the symbol of luxury that launched us into the future. As citrus took over the state, the land that had been taken from the Seminoles was soon filled with settlers seeking a new life. When two freezes hit back to back in the late 19th century, the state clung to life by a thread. The way to crawl back wasn't just in selling citrus, it was selling the idea of what citrus meant. Soon, oranges became the symbol of exotic luxury and opulence nationwide. The rest of the country didn't just buy the fruit, they bought the dream. Florida was painted as the getaway state now, but only if you were rich. Now, that isn't the case. Florida is a place for any visitor. Along our coasts, millions flock every single year to spend a day, a weekend, a week along our shores. 
We have over 600 miles of beach, and so much of that is bordered by commercial real estate, whether that be restaurants, attractions, or hotels. This can affect our animals, our plants, our waters, but scientists believe, and have for decades, that soon the water will start encroaching back. Now, when we talk about sea level rise, we aren't just talking about water gradually being in the streets. The image is of creeping water spilling into our cities and eating us alive. In reality, it will come more in the form of storm surges. When hurricanes hit, their wind and rain build up the sea levels and lead to crashing waves that spill into the cities and streets. If sea levels continue to rise, and if we would like to continue to inhabit coastal cities or cities along major waterways, some reports estimate that it would cost us $76 billion to build seawalls. For context, with that amount of money, you could buy 2.5 million cars. It's a number larger than the human mind can process, but it is the amount of money that we would need to keep sea levels from crashing into our homes. Our flood control systems across the state are not equipped for this kind of protective drainage. Our environments will be drowned, and our water-adjacent cities will be leveled in one fell swoop. The heat index could rise, and our summers could be even longer. A third of our years will see days over 100 degrees. Algae blooms get stronger with warmer air, and so do the hurricanes. It is a cycle. Each and every type of problem an ecosystem like ours could face from climate change is present here in Florida. And... In moments like the one I'm sure you're feeling right now, everything starts to feel hopeless. We are small human beings. From where we sit in 2019, the future of climate change is the existential crisis of our lifetime. Using reusable water bottles and turning off the lights and going vegetarian can only save so much. It's important, vitally and those little fights are valuable, but in the end, what can we do? We didn't create this problem. It was a path we were set on centuries ago that we are still, unfortunately, moving down. What can we do? For me, it isn't long before I start to panic. And then, I think of the Orlando Wetlands Park where the different pathways have different names, like Osprey Boulevard and Bobcat Trail and Raccoon Lane, a place where human beings were facing a problem that had no easy solution, and so they went with a hard one. I think of a recent kayak trip that I took down the Wakaiva River, where guests parked their boats on the shallow riverbeds and sat in low beach chairs, resting their legs in the cold spring water just so they could feel connected. I think of the bird stewards in their spots on the beaches, watching with diligence over the little birds that trot along the sand. I think of the Zora Neale Hurston Museum in Eatonville that I visited this spring. Their original museum has been torn down, but they're constructing a new one dedicated to Zora and her idea that Florida's people, specifically Florida's people of color, have stories that unite us as a state. I think of the scientists in the Indian River Citrus District testing the orange trees to not only keep them healthy, but to do it in a way that keeps the whole agricultural ecosystem clean and safe. I think of the state legislators who have agreed across party lines that our environment is worth protecting and approved of the governor's budget that gave millions upon millions to our Everglades. I think of the state parks where manatees float to warm waters 
and where the black bears have free range to roam, and where the Florida panthers are being diligently tracked and cared for, and where sea turtles lay their eggs by the dozens. I read a story about the sea turtles recently, where hundreds of guests flooded to a beach to watch fireworks for the 4th of July. The fireworks were shortly overshadowed when a patch of turtle eggs burst from their little shells and marched to the sea. The fireworks ceased, and all of the beach patrons made a protective path to the ocean, allowing the little turtle babies to travel to the sea without any threat or potential of harm. I think of them, and I think of the park rangers, and the volunteers, and the journalists, and activists, and writers, and artists, what they do, what we do. Would it matter in the slightest if we didn't have some hope for our futures? I've learned a lot this year, and one of the most significant things is this. Floridians have hope. We have it in heaps. So let me give you some more. Nearly a decade ago, the counties that would be first affected by climate change bound together to form a community that would combat it together. These counties are Broward, Miami-Dade, Monroe, and Palm Beach, and their group is called the Southeast Florida Regional Climate Change Compact. Together, they set annual goals and plan for future success in their respective regions. It isn't just general ideas, it's highly specific plans in specific areas like agriculture, energy and fuel, business cooperation, policy advocacy, even public health. For agriculture, they have 11 different goals ranging from climate-friendly growing, appropriate land management, and overall health of farm workers. The list goes on and on, but the ideas are strong and committed. By sheer force of will, South Florida has built up an action plan to protect each and every segment of their communities. And what's more, they're willing to share their ideas with the rest of the world. They have a custom plan builder where you can input your job, the organization type that you work for, and where you want to improve, and they will share their ideas with you so that you and your group can work similarly to save our state. Our journalists are uniting as well, forming a coalition of six major news outlets to tell better stories about climate change. The Orlando Sentinel, the Miami Herald, the Sun Sentinel, the Tampa Bay Times, the Palm Beach Post, and Miami's NPR station WLRN are uniting to provide clearer information and news about our fight against climate change. Many other companies may join the program, but the idea is to spread the stories to everyone. We can only fight the enemy if we know what it looks like, and their goal is to make sure we do. They will feature hyper-localized stories for their respective areas in order to keep local citizens aware of how their specific communities are facing the dangers. And speaking of communities, cities all over the state are launching green initiative plans to find ways that specific cities can be healthier and safer. Whether that is a simple thing like cleaner energy and greener spaces, or bigger things like investing in ways to use our land and water and resources appropriately, different cities are seeking different answers. In my hometown of Orlando, the mayor and city government have a few ideas, including an increase in community transportation, improving our recycling system, expanding opportunities for locally sourced food, more efficient building codes, and more. Even just riding a train tomorrow to work or out of town will help fight the fight. And this is coming from the guy who created this podcast just to complain about rail expansion. Every little thing has a place. We are facing great changes every single day, not just at a local scale, but at a global one. Our very lives depend on our ability to become smarter 
to become more compassionate and to change. We in our state, in our communities, in our homes need to be willing to change if we are going to win. We cannot suddenly stop the corporations that are mostly contributing to climate change. You'll need to vote in order to do that. But what we can do is be willing to change with the times. Take a train, ride a bike, invest in farmers, talk to your community leaders, clean up a beach or a trail, donate to activists that are supporting our ecosystem. Keep planning, keep working, keep changing. We're not going to win overnight. But I have hope, and I hope that you do too. Thank you so much for listening to this special one-year anniversary episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. This show has changed in a dozen different ways over this past year. When it started, it was exclusively a politics podcast preparing for an upcoming election. I soon realized that history and modern issues were a story I wanted to tell, and the show shifted into something that I'm extraordinarily proud of. It's had some unusual bumps along the way, including segments about my favorite animals and podcasts, which soon, gratefully, fell to the wayside. There was going to be a third episode about oil in the Everglades, an episode about mental health in Florida, and an episode about public sandwiches, but they were all scrapped mid-production. I even had to cancel Tallahassee Tuesday because it just took too much time. All of this is because I wanted to make something perfect, and sometimes your grand ideas don't always play out the way you want them to, but that is okay. The show is growing, and it still is. Let me name some of the ways. Firstly, the show will no longer be released on Fridays, will no longer be your doorway to the weekend. From now on, we are a Monday show, perfect to start your work week with a fascinating story about our fascinating state. Secondly, this show will now be produced in 12 episode seasons, with a month break in between each season. I would love to be making episodes every day if I could, but I want to be making the best episodes possible, and sometimes that takes time. So the show will be in seasons now. Not like you need to listen to every episode in order to enjoy it properly, but like 12 episodes that I have made perfectly just for you. If you're worried about not having episodes for a month, do not worry, there will be episodes in the month of August, but they will be mini episodes about hilarious, wonderful stories that couldn't make up a full episode of the show. Look for the first one of those on August 5th for every Monday in August. Then, the official second season of this show will begin on September 9th. The episodes I have planned for the fall are stories I've been excited about for months. There will be episodes about politics, the environment, cultural customs, incredible historical figures, and somehow, an abandoned theme park. You are going to love them. There will be new logos, new art, even a new website. There will be exciting guests and amazing trips, and I am beyond eager to get started. If you do love the show and you are excited for that upcoming second season, please follow Wait 5 Minutes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. You can also email me at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. I still have a few episodes of season two to figure out and, of course, season three, and I would love to hear what you would love to hear. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles of those in the description below, along with all of the links used in the research. That's it for me. And that's it for the first season of Wait 5 Minutes. 
If you've listened to any episode of this show, even if this is your first, or if you've listened to every little second in the past year, my gratitude cannot even come close to being expressed. It helped me find my passion, taught me incredibly important things, took me places I'd never even heard of, and showed me how amazing human beings can be. You are all a part of this every step of the way. Every listen brings me joy and tells me that this show has value beyond measure. And I'm so lucky that you give me the time to tell you a story for 30 minutes every week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will see you on August 5th for the first of the mini episodes and then for the official beginning of season two on September 9th. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Thank you for an unbelievable year. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Have a good weekend. See you in August.